Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. So my father had been an alcoholic for 20 years and he just destroyed himself. So my dad gave himself a disease called Pick's disease, which is a kind of early onset dementia. So he was starting to lose his memory. He couldn't work out what time it was anymore. He wasn't eating properly. We started having drunks turn up at the house. It was pretty traumatic. And my mom was going to have a nervous breakdown. And at the same time, I was on this project at McKinsey where I didn't see the sunshine for three months. I think I worked 19 hours on my 25th birthday. And then my relationship of four years was just falling apart. So it was this like absolute like confluence of all these different things. And I was like, I have to get out. This is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Arthur Worsley. He is a location independent entrepreneur, writer, coach, and founder of Faster to Master, which helps executives, entrepreneurs, and self-starters to read more, learn faster, and wake up productive. Originally from the UK, Arthur has a degree from Oxford University, where he specialized in studying the neurophysiology of memory and has subsequently focused his career on developing techniques for highly accelerated learning and ultra productivity. Arthur has applied his techniques to language learning, passing his B2 German fluency exam after just five months of learning German. He has gotten to a conversational level in a total of eight languages, four of which he maintains today, including Mandarin, German, French, and English, in which we will be conducting this interview today. Arthur has also applied his meta-learning techniques to athletics and fitness, becoming a level two Canadian ski instructor just six months after picking up his first set of skis. He has also applied them to physical endurance training, and with less than 10 months of preparation, he completed the legendary Marathon of the Sands, a six-day, 156-mile ultramarathon through the Sahara Desert in southern Morocco that is widely regarded as the toughest foot race on earth. Today, Arthur teaches others how to transform their lives by applying his accelerated learning and productivity techniques to the most important aspects of their own lives. 
Arthur has built his business with a completely location-independent infrastructure, so he can run it from anywhere in the world, and he has traveled to over 100 countries on seven continents. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks. It is so good to have you here, my man. Just to set the context and the scene here, you and I are currently in Canggu, which is in Bali, Indonesia, and we have just opened a bottle of Chilean Syrah, and it is not easy to get a good bottle of wine in this town, I will tell you that. No, definitely not. And cheese. Cheese is really hard to find out here. Well, unfortunately, we don't have the cheese to go with the wine, but we do have a very nice bottle that we have just opened and we'll be drinking through during this episode. Now, this is my first time to Changu. I just got here this week and I'm here for a month. You and I met through our mutual friend, Trevor Gerhardt. We just had dinner together uh, with a really cool crowd last night. But you, I know, have spent a lot of time in Changu. And I would love to just open this up just to get sort of your thoughts and description about Changu, maybe especially for people that have never been here, because this sounds to me like, and I had heard before coming here, Changu is basically like this nomad vortex where people kind of travel around the world and then they come through Bali and either Changu or Ubud, they just kind of end up staying. And so I know so many people that sort of were itinerant and now they're kind of fully or part-time based in Bali. So what is it about Bali that you like so much and that's attracting so many nomads? Oh man, where to start? Uh, there's so much about Bali uh, that I love. I think so my partner, Aaron and I came here originally for three months and we're a classic example of people who then stayed for eight months and then came back and then came back and then came back and we've just signed our second 12-month lease. But I think the people are the most important thing here and not just the other entrepreneurs, nomads, people who are making a life here, who've been here 10, 15, 20 years, but also the local people who are just so unbelievably wonderful. You know, they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, but just being around people who are so unfailingly patient and happy and kind, it just sort of rubs off on everyone around. So everyone here has time. You know, it's the kind of place you can chat to a stranger in a cafe and, and just have a really lovely conversation that no one's too busy. That's amazing. Yeah, I've literally been here for less than a week. And just sort of the energy of the place is definitely a really special thing. Like it's noticeable, just like walking around and sort of being here. And of course, it's right on the ocean and the sunsets every single night are gorgeous and remarkable. And then depending on what type of scene you're into, there's all of this, you know, sort of deep spirituality and self-discovery, you know, sort of scene here. But then there's also the pool parties and DJs and nightclubs and that sort of scene. And there's just, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but definitely really, really special vibe for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Definitely agree. Awesome. So let's start off a little bit just sort of with your background, your story. Where did you grow up and how did you sort of gravitate towards entrepreneurship and towards these productivity and meta learning techniques? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in the UK. I was in London for a very long time. Uh, well, actually, I say a very long time until I was eight. And then my parents sent me to boarding school, uh, <laughs> eight years old, uh, which was tough, but uh, absolutely loved it. And I think it sort of makes you very independent. But I didn't, I was on a very traditional path, uh, this, the sort of schools and the, the life that I was into, you know, you, you know, I always knew I was going to go to which school I was going to go to and what university I'd end up at, what kind of career I'd have. And then when I got to university, I just loved solving problems. There were so many people doing cool entrepreneurial things. And 
yeah, how did I start? I just decided that I was going to learn to code. I taught myself how to code. I decided I was going to start a costume rental business and plowed hours and hours into it and actually failed my first year exams because I was working so hard on that business. And it totally bumped. It totally failed. Uh, absolutely useless, but it taught me a lot. So that's where I learned all my technical skills, um, all the programming languages that I learned, which I've served me well for the rest of my life. And then I... Uh, I was just trying to start other businesses. I got into the nightlife industry, had a monopoly on all the nightlife um, in the city with two friends and was trying to do that while doing my degree. Um, and it was totally overwhelming and I had so much on my plate. And that's where I first got into productivity. I started out reading Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is probably one of my favorite productivity books of all time. It's definitely one of my top two. Uh, and I also at the same time read uh, Tim Ferriss's um, The 4-Hour Workweek, which is where almost everyone starts. And it just created this idea that maybe these weren't just small projects, fun things that I was doing while I was getting my degree. Maybe there was another way to, to live life that didn't involve becoming an accountant or a lawyer or a banker or something like that. What was your nightlife business like? What was going on there at the time? Um, so we, um, it was just a, it was just a lot of fun. It was a huge, we just really enjoyed it. Um, I started out working in a bar, so I had a bar job and then the guy who owned the bar also owned a club and he was like, Hey, do you want to run some, uh, nightclub nights for us? And we were like, yeah, sure. It was me and, and one of my best friends at the time. And the money was insane for a student. We would go home. That was a small club and we would go home with in dollars, like $1,500 each at the end of every Thursday night for, you know, not that much work. And I thought, wow, I want to do more of this stuff. This is great. So I approached another guy and there was a guy who had a monopoly on the nightlife in the city at the time. And we just basically, uh, he was a, he's a total monopoly. And whenever you see a monopoly, there's always room for an underdog, right? So he'd got too comfortable and we basically sold out the entirety of Freshers Week, which is the first week of clubbing for the year before he even knew what was happening. So we made 80,000 pounds in a week. I just had a box file of 80,000 pounds in my college dorm room and we just basically built the business off the back of that wow yeah it was fun <laughs> that's amazing and then while you were in college you also got into some other sort of startup business ventures as well yeah so I, they actually all stemmed off of that so we were doing a whole load of printing so i started a, a print brokerage which is a really uh it was basically like a lot of printers are just making a huge margin they, they're very good at one product but they're terrible at a whole load of other products so you have uh, businesses which will go to a printer and they'll get a great deal on their business cards and then they get uh, absolutely ripped off on everything else and so we started a print brokerage where we would basically consolidate uh, all our printing plus the printing of the student union plus we were doing domino's pizza at one point the nhs and we would then farm their individual jobs out to the right printer. And we would just take, we would save them 50% on their printing costs. We just take a 25% margin off all of that. It cost us the price of a laptop to run. We didn't need anything. So, so that was my second business. Wow. And so, and all the while now you're at Oxford and you're studying, what did you decide to major in in Oxford and what was sort of your, your academic and sort of your career theoretical career trajectory <laughs> that you were sort of pursuing at that time? I always thought I was going to do something more language oriented. Um, I loved languages when I was at school, but I always thought I could learn languages later. And I actually did end up going back to languages. So I, I picked something scientific. I'd always been interested, um, partly because of my background and my childhood and, and some challenges that I had uh, with my dad. Um, I'd always been interested in, in why people do what they do, how they work, um, what it is that went on. So I decided I would study psychology, philosophy, and physiology, which is a triple honors degree, which doesn't actually exist anymore. Uh, and I specialized in psychology and physiology. Um, and specifically, I loved uh, everything about neuropharmacology. So the actual brain chemistry, how, what goes on at the synapses on the neural level. So. 
So you get your degree from Oxford. You have these sort of entrepreneurial things that you've been working on. And then what was your next professional sort of move there? Where did you go from there? Yeah, so I actually, in the last year, I was so overwhelmed by all the work and everything when, uh, going on with the businesses. So I sold my share in the businesses uh, to my business partners and I stepped out uh, about six weeks before my final exams and then tried to learn three years worth of stuff in six weeks, which was hectic. Um, <laughs> but good for the accelerated learning. I learned a whole lot of really good lessons there. I still have to this day when I'm really stressed, I still have nightmares about failing my university exams. So, <laughs> wow. That moment when you started, did you start applying some of these techniques that you had been reading about and learning? And how did that go for you at that period. So I'd been learning. So I, I always think that productivity basically splits into three things. We talked about this last night. So it's um, competence, which is just basically uh, getting organized, not letting stuff slip through the gaps, you know, managing your time, all that kind of thing. Then there's work-life balance and then there's meaning and purpose. And at that stage, I was not thinking about work-life balance or meaning and purpose. I was just thinking about surviving and getting stuff done. So so I was sort of in the competence phase. So that's where I was using the productivity stuff. And then I was also uh, starting to learn. We were, I was learning, sp specializing in the neuropharmacology and memory. So I was using some of the stuff that I was learning to learn as fast as I could and just learn smart rather than learn hard. And it worked out. It just about worked out. Yeah. I mean, I, I pulled a gamble. I, I learned a fraction of the course and I basically just looked at all the papers that had come up in the last eight years and then memorized a whole load of stuff and all the papers came up. So I nearly got a first after six weeks, but that was luck. If one paper had come up differently, I would have been in a different position. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. So then you get through that gauntlet. Yeah. You take a massive deep breath that you're through that whole ordeal. And then what is your next life move now that you've finished university? So I really wanted to carry on with the entrepreneurial stuff. That was the the passion for me was getting back into business, but I felt very isolated at university. I felt like at that time, you know, there was none, there wasn't as much of the the resources, the courses on digital marketing, the community, there was no, uh, you know, none of these meetups, none of these entrepreneur year away, like all these kind of things. So I, I wanted to go somewhere. I felt like I was reinventing the wheel and I was super, super isolated. So I decided to, to go and get some jobs um, in the city um, where I would be working and learning from other people where I'd have some mentorship and some training. And I started out by becoming an in-house entrepreneur for a, a crazy Polish shipping baron. And that was uh, really fun. And then after two years, I was sort of thinking to myself, where can I go where I'm really going to learn the most? And I had this plan with a friend to start uh, an investment fund. And he went and became a financial analyst. And I went to McKinsey to understand how companies work and, and basically just try and absorb as much as I could. And what was that like for you at McKinsey, I guess, both in terms of what you were hoping and anticipating to get out of it? And then what was the reality of your experience there? McKinsey was probably the three best years of my life, or not the best years of my life, but certainly three of the best years that I've, I certainly in my career. I absolutely loved it. All my closest friends to this day are from McKinsey. The people I met there were deeply inspiring. The work that we did was fascinating. So every three months I'd rotate onto a new project and have, it was just such a steep learning curve. You'd have to go from knowing nothing about, you know, the military or the travel industry or oil and gas, and you'd have to become an expert on your sector in three months. And you'd work with new people, new teams all the time. So I really loved it. But the there came a point where um, you start having to specialize. I was, you know, when I started, they would let you work on whatever you wanted to, especially if you were good, you could basically pick your projects anywhere in the world. But then you had to start becoming a sort of career consultant and, and start learning how to manage, how to play the politics of consulting. And that wasn't interesting for me. So, 
What do you think were sort of the biggest takeaways from McKinsey that you learned and the development that you experienced that you took with you added value to what you were going to do next in your life? I think the the thing that you learn at McKinsey, which is incredibly valuable, is just a rigorous structuring of every problem. So we have this thing at McKinsey, we'd call it MISI. It has to be a mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive subset. So you'd break down an issue into an issue tree. So everything is like a pyramid. You have a main issue and then you have the five factors that feed into it and the five sub factors under that. And so learning to think like that, to just constantly break problems down into their, into smaller problems that you can then break into smaller problems that you can solve and then go back up to the answer is was easily one of the most fascinating things that I learned there. And what was your decision-making process like as you decided to transition out of McKinsey? So you were there for those three years that you said were incredibly meaningful, significant, enriching, intellectually engaging, and everything else. What was the decision-making process like to transition out of that? And then what type of plan did you have for what you thought you were going to do next? I, I think um, when I got there, I kind of forgot why I'd gone there in the first place. You know, I went there to learn so I could go back to entrepreneurship. And if you'd asked me two years into McKinsey what I was going to do with the rest of my life, it was like I wanted to be a McKinsey director and stay there and, and do something like that. And then I just had this whole heap, like a lot of people I meet who are out here in Bali, there's like something that happens in your life, this like crunch point, which just kicks you out of the matrix. It's like a train and you just get kicked off the rails and suddenly you realize that you like, look at the rails, you're like, I don't even know why I was on that path anymore. And it reminds you of what's important. So what was that for you? What were you going through at the time? And, and what was that transitionary experience like? Yeah, I think for me, I, there was this, this three-month period um, where... So my father had been an alcoholic for 20 years. And I still remember my first earliest memory as being like nine years old and having my mom on the phone to me in tears because my dad was drinking and, and it had got steadily worse and worse over the years. Never He was never violent or never abusive, but he just destroyed himself. And watching that, I think was my earliest moment. That was the thing that got me thinking about how people work. And, and if I look at a lot of the people I know in my life who think slightly differently, they've gone through something similar, some kind of experience early on in life, which kicks them out, which wakes them up. And it's like, hey, life isn't fair, but why, is, why doesn't it work this way? So that sort of came to a head at that period uh, in the second year or the, so the end of the second year that I was there. And I ended up having, so my dad gave himself a disease called Pick's disease, which is a kind of early onset dementia and it was, it actually came as a relief almost because I was almost on the point of, so he was starting to lose his memory. He couldn't work out what time it was anymore. He wasn't eating properly. We started having drunks turn up at the house. It was pretty traumatic. And my mom had, was going to have a nervous breakdown. So I had her almost having a nervous breakdown and then she was going to have to divorce my dad. And I would have had to have been my dad's power of attorney in the divorce against my mom, which would have been tough because of everything that happened as a child. I was had a close relationship with my mom. So I had that happening on the family side. I think of everything happening as buckets, right? And then at the at the same time, I was on this project at McKinsey where I didn't see the sunshine for three months. It was just like an intense project. I think I worked uh, 19 hours on my 25th birthday. The, part, the lead partner on the project gave himself meningitis. He was working so hard. Uh, so that was really crazy. And then the, the last thing was that my relationship of four years was just falling apart, probably because you know, you're just growing so much at that stage of your life and we were growing apart and it didn't make sense. And also because of all of this stress and pressure that was going on. So it was this like absolute like confluence of all these different things. And McKinsey had this program called Take Time where you could get away. Uh, you could take a month of unpaid leave on top of your holiday. And at one point I just walked into the staffer's office and I was like, I have to get out. 
you know, I need, I need space. You know, I'm starting to crack. Like I can't handle holding everything up for my family and being the lead like analyst on the analytics on the, the project I was on and my relationship falling apart at the same time. And so that was the first time actually I really discovered my love of traveling. I just went to Argentina for two months and just uh, got some space. And actually the first, sorry, the first trip was I went to Guatemala for a month and then I went to Argentina for two months and I just got some space and perspective and I just journaled hours and hours every day just writing out and started it sort of kicked me out and, and woke me back up and made me question a lot of the things that were going on wow and now as we read in the bio you have now been to over a hundred countries and you've been to all seven continents so it sounds like that really kick-started a, a a serious travel journey let me ask you this just because i want to get into some of your travel journey and and travel stories and experiences and stuff because you've had some amazing ones but let me just ask you this at the outset just sort of a macro level question at this point in your life why do you travel what do you get out of it what does travel mean to you i think there's the there's the real answer that i left and went traveling the first thing the first reason i went traveling is i was just running away from what, well, whatever was at home. I just couldn't deal with it. And I was like, I want to get away. And so I left. And I think leaving all of those cues, all of those things, it gives you, and not being around people who know you how you used to be. And it gives you permission to just totally reinvent yourself. And that's incredibly liberating. And then once you start traveling, and once I started traveling, I realized there was just so much of the world that I just had taken for granted or thought was one way and wasn't another way. And, and I was just learning so much. And it was so fascinating. You know, you see, Babies have this incredible uh, thing where they're just totally attracted to anything novel and all human beings are like that, you know, these new experiences, whether it be cultural or, or geographical. And so then I started running towards those things. I was like, this is something that I want to have more of. Um, and then I think there's sort of a natural progression for a lot of people where they start out running away, then they they try and run towards things. And then they actually realize that neither of those things make them happy and they've come to peace with wherever they are, you know, right now. And, and that was the sort of long journey that I went through. So let's talk about some of your travel experiences. And I think I want to start with Antarctica and just asking you about that, because there are not a lot of people that have even very, very, very well-traveled people that have been to Antarctica. And I would love for you to share, I guess, first of all, what that experience was like and, you know, anything that happened on that trip and and, and so forth. Yeah, no, uh, it was an incredible experience. I mean, it's there's one thing to watch planet Earth or something like that. It's another thing to stand there. So I did 21 days. Um, we went to the Falkland Islands, uh, South Georgia, and then South uh, to Antarctica. So it was a really long trip. Met some incredible people on the boat because you're sort of 21 days with no Wi-Fi. Everyone's upstairs the whole time just chatting. But yeah, I was there for Christmas Day and, and New Year's. And I surprised everyone with my, my father Christmas onesie on Christmas Day, which actually did not go down that well with some of the, the people on there. So it was a, a big Filipino crew and the Filipinos on the ship absolutely loved Christmas. So they were overjoyed. They brought me into their Christmas carol singing. It was great. But a lot of people were like, oh, I, I came here to get away from Christmas. And I was like, tough, I'm here, I'm Santa. Uh, but it turns out they had supporters because I don't know what it is about the color red, but fur seals do not like the color red. So I spent a lot of time running away from angry fur seals uh, in Antarctica, including through a, a colony of 500,000 penguins on Christmas Day, where they just kept on chasing me. They just really hate Santa down there. I don't know what it is. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel like Antarctica for some people is either something that's intimidating or or it's just like so far in the out of the realm of possibility that they don't even like fathom the concept of what it would take to go there and what it would be like. And then other people, 
it's like super high on their bucket list and they really, really want to do it. So after your experience, is it something that you would highly recommend that people do? I think it's the kind of trip that if you do it well is unmissable and you've got to do it. There's a, a lot of time. So you need to know what kind of ship to pick. You don't want to be on a ship that's over a hundred people because otherwise they have to rotate people. They can only have, every ship can only have a hundred people on land at any one time. You know, if you turn up and you just try and get the cheapest deal possible, chances are you'll get a suboptimal experience. But if you plan it and you think about it, I mean, just there's, there's nothing that can convey the feeling of being on a hill looking over a colony of half a million king penguins, the sound, the, the sight, and specifically the smell will never ever leave you um it's just uh it's incredible and, and these these creatures it's not like anywhere else in the world they're not afraid of humans at all that you know the, the little baby elephant seals just come up and try and eat your shoe you know they and these are these like 100 kilo baby elephant seals and they just don't care they're like yeah it's amazing it's insane that's amazing so i've probably at this point been to maybe 75 or so countries but you've definitely been to a number that i have not been to and one region that you mentioned to me that you traveled to pretty extensively that i have not even touched is central asia mm. and i think you mentioned that you actually traveled through there with your mother i did yeah. on an extended trip i would love to hear about that trip and how central asia was for you so two things so first is um traveling with my mom was probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I think there's a temptation when you go home and see your parents to just slip back into this relationship of being the, you know, being the child. You know, it's so easy to go back into those cues. Even now, age 31, I get back home and I start fighting with my brother and sister over who gets to eat the last piece of, you know, like salami in the fridge or whatever it is, right? But when you take yourselves out of that context and travel one-on-one -on -one, and really importantly, one-on-one -on -one with a parent, it's an incredible experience because you really get to know them as an adult. You know, you ask all of the questions. You have those long periods of silences where you get beyond catching up and beyond them just making sure that you're okay. And you start to ask all the questions that you never saw and you, and you start to spend time with them in a way that you see them as a totally different human being. And you form a really, an adult friendship with them, which was uh, really beautiful. So I really, really love that. And I, I've tried to make it something I do every year now with different people in my family. That's amazing. And do you recommend Central Asia as a region? You went because you went through Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan yeah. and Kazakhstan and like you went through the whole region. And is that a is that a trip that you recommend? Insane. So we did Turkey, Iran, Turkmenistan, which gets Turkmenistan was for me, one of the highlights, I don't know if you know anything about it, but it gets one third the number of tourists of North Korea. And it's basically uh, kind of like North Korea, but with a whole load of gas money. So the capital city is made entirely out of Italian imported white marble and no one is in it. It's totally, it's like Disneyland. Um, we construction, which is this French construction company built the whole thing, but no one lives there. And it's, it's just beautiful. Uh, the main uh, tourist attraction is the gates of hell. Um, and it's this uh, 60 meter wide crater, which the Russians accidentally collapsed when they were building a gas pipeline. And they decided, okay, we're going to set this thing on fire because otherwise the gas will poison the animals. And it's still been, it's been burning for 45 years or 50 years. Uh, and you just camp next to it. And yeah, I was learning Russian at the time. So it was great. I got to connect with the locals and had loads of really interesting especially the older locals. And, and it's so interesting. What I love about traveling more than anything is seeing the story from the other side. So seeing what they thought about the West before the Soviet Union collapsed and what the story was and, and you know, even going to places like Vietnam. Anyway, I'll get, I'll get sidetracked, but a, that's a whole story in and of itself. But the whole region is people, even my friends, I was calling, they were like, are you safe? Is it okay out there? It's probably the safest part of the world I've ever been to. And just so authentic, especially in Kyrgyzstan and uh, Tajikistan, you know, in, in Kyrgyzstan, you can just buy a horse in Osh and ride it 
several hundred, a thousand miles, I think, to the capital city and then sell it again. And there's no fences, there's no nothing. There's just yurts and wolves. Um, and, you know, they still like play the nomad games where they throw a headless goat around and, you know, lasso each other. And it's it's insane. It's a really stunning and a very authentic part of the world. Wow. And now you mentioned North Korea in passing, and I know you have also been to North Korea. I would love to hear how that was. I was actually in Seoul in South Korea and Busan last year and went up to the demilitarized zone kind of right on the border and, you know, all that. So I kind of saw the DMZ from the South, but very curious to hear what your experience was like in North Korea. Yeah. So the, the funny thing is that in the South, they take the DMZ really seriously. You know, there's there's like no messing around. Like In the North, they were just posing for photos with us. They didn't care. They were super... Jo- now, obviously, we all know the stories. Like it's the kind of place which is like super relaxed until it's not, right? And then it gets really bad. But we had an amazing time there on our trip. You obviously go knowing that you're seeing a very curated side of the country. But at the same time, people always say, oh, you're you're only seeing it. You know, how many people go to London and go to like some of the council estates, you know, in the slightly less uh, safe areas of London to see what authentic London looks like, right? No one does that. Everyone goes and sees Buckingham Palace or goes on Oxford Street. You know, no matter where you travel, you're going to see a curated view here. There's just, you don't get the choice to not see it. It was fascinating to see the story from the other side and and see how they tell it. And um, yeah, it was just very, it was a very cool experience. I was there for 10 days. So... And how was Iran? That is another country that is super high on my list. I was in, I did a little, I spent a little bit of time in the Caspian region this year. I was in Georgia, in Tbilisi, and then I was in Baku and Azerbaijan. And Iran, though, is very high on my list. I have a lot of Persian friends, have always, I mean, since high school, I've had very close Persian friends. And so it's been very high on my list for a while. Haven't done it yet. But how was your experience in Iran? Iran is, I think, of all the countries I've been to, the country where the external view that we're led to you know that we see the the sort of uh, the political facade is could not be more different to uh, how it is when you actually get there it's probably the just the night i mean that whole region there's an incredible tradition of of treating guests incredibly well in a way that we just don't do in the west you know we have this sort of mentality of scarcity in the west which means that we treat strangers quite in quite a hostile way a lot of the time but out there they're just incredibly warm you know there's it's not unusual to just be walking down the street. We had one guy who just came up. He just wanted to practice his English with us. So he started talking to us about British politics. He thought that we'd find find that interesting and then invite you home. And, and before you know it, you're getting passed on to one of their family friends. And, and you can spend the whole thing never actually seeing any of the sights and just experiencing the warmth of the people there. Wow. Amazing. So, okay. I have got to ask you about the story about the Marathon of the Sands that you ran in the Sahara Desert in Morocco, which is unbelievable. I mean, this is a 156-mile-long ultramarathon through the Sahara Desert. So can you talk a little bit about how that whole idea came about and then what your training process was like? Because you were not, when you initially had the idea to do that, you were not an experienced long-distance endurance runner, right? I've never run a marathon. (laughs) I never even run a half marathon, I don't think. Um, (laughs) I have this incredible friend who's a friend of mine from McKinsey. He's still there. Uh, He's the youngest ever partner in the history of McKinsey. He's horribly overachieving. And he was like, uh, do you want to go and do this marathon with me? And whenever I get the opportunity to hang out with my friends in an environment where there's going to be no mobile phones and no laptops, and we can just hang out together for ages, I always just say yes, whatever it is. So I just said yes before I even knew what it was. 
And that was a really bad mistake because it turned out to be uh, quite an ordeal <laughs> for everyone involved, but actually specifically for the poor guy who suggested it. <laughs> so, Yeah, this is, this is literally regarded as the toughest foot race on earth, 156 miles through the desert. So I want to hear, I guess, you know, you said yes, you'll do it sort of on a lark, it sounds like. What was, and, and then you had 10 months to prepare for it. So what was your personal preparation process as someone who's never even run a half marathon to prepare for a 156 mile desert marathon? What was that preparation process like for you? Well, I mean, the first thing I did, my usual response to everything was just read a whole load of books. <laughs> so I started out by reading five books on running and then just synthesized a whole load of notes and then freaked all my friends out by sending them my synthesized notes on sort of week two of our training process. But that really helped because it meant that I didn't get injured and I sort of followed a lot of good practice on training and things. So yeah, I just started training while I was running. I was running on the beach in Bali. I was running through Tokyo. I was running through Kyoto. I was running uh, in shorts in minus one degrees in Canada. People just thought I was crazy. And the thing about the MDS is you carry all of your equipment on your back. So all your food, um, you carry whatever your water ration is, uh, you carry all of your clothes. So I was just running. Uh, it was getting to the long stages of my training. I was running in Canada with just 10 kilos of Coca-Cola bottles just filled up with water in a backpack. And people just thought I was insane saying. They just see me every single day. I once got into a taxi and they were like, oh yeah, you're that guy who runs around with a backpack on. Why are you doing that? So yeah, it was, uh, it was intense. Wow. And so then can you explain just a little bit more for people that have never heard of this event, just what are the details of, you know, what is this thing like and how was the experience? Yeah. It, it calls itself the hardest foot race on earth. A lot of really serious ultra marathon runners get upset by that because there are I mean, you can you could always run further or longer, but it's certainly um, it's certainly a, an interesting experience. So it's a marathon. So first day a marathon, second day a marathon, third day is a double marathon, back to back. Fourth day is a marathon, fifth day is a half marathon. Oh, fourth day is a rest day, fifth day is a marathon, uh, sixth day is a half marathon. So yeah, <laughs> where to go to start? It was it was pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, can you can you sort of descri describe it? How many people were there? Where do you start? And and what is it like just running a marathon through the Sahara Desert? Like, can you just sort of describe the the day to day experience? And maybe even from your impression, like what you were expecting. You read about it, obviously, but then you get there, and then what was that like? I mean, on day one, what was the experience? I think you sort of just go into execution mode. You don't really think when you get there, you're like, okay, I just have to get through the day. I actually was the only person in the entire marathon. So there were a thousand people uh, who ran it. I was the only person in the entire marathon who uh, managed to injure their feet before the race even started. So we were on the, the coaches from the airport on the way to the, to the first campsite and everyone gets out to go to the bathroom and I'm wearing flip-flops and I get off the bus and I just kick a rock incredibly hard and it just my front toe, my big left toe just bursts open. There's just blood everywhere. And I just have to go and find a doctor. And the doctor just looks at me and her face goes white. And all my friends are trying to put a brave face on it, but they're like, oh, Arthur is in trouble. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty bad. And everyone was looking at me, but I made everyone else feel great. So that was awesome. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we got to the camp, um, we do day one, um, and I'm sort of wrapping my foot up and actually, so I, I ended up power hiking the whole race rather than running it because my friend who organized the whole thing ended up training for it. He works incredibly hard. He ended up training for it between midnight and, and half one in the morning after he finished work every day. So he was, uh, probably not as thoroughly trained as he should have been for the race. And he, he lost nine toenails, broke two toes, 
carved all of the skin off his feet. The photos are horrendous. It took him three months to walk properly again afterwards. And so my feet actually healed during the race because I was prepared for a running race and ended up power hiking with him. But uh, his was the real, real stoic performance to finish with all of that damage. It was insane. Wow. So what are the differences in terms of what you would do to prepare for this type of event versus, let's just say, like a regular marathon that you're running on the street? Like what were the nuances here? Weight is uh, the first one because you're running with, you know, anything between eight and 12 kilos, depending on how much food you're carrying. Also, um, you have to really prepare your feet because you're running on sand. So the main thing that hits people is it's just the blisters. I mean, you have these horrible stories of um, people just peeling off. And if you do it wrong, so, so you can harden your feet. So I, for a month or two before the race, I was getting into bed every night and run, rubbing a, a mixture of olive oil, uh, lanolin and witch hazel on my feet and then putting socks on and going to bed. And that was keeping toughening my feet, but keeping them soft at the same time. Because every time you're on a sand dune and your foot slips, you're rubbing on the inside of your foot. And also if you get dehydrated, if you don't manage your water properly, your feet start to swell inside your shoes. And so um, I think it was on the long day, there were 700 of the thousand races were all treated for blisters. And all you hear is just screams coming from the tent as they're like cutting the blisters open and then filling up. I, have, I remember my friend, Harry just sitting there first thing in the morning and just heating a needle and just pushing it uh, slowly through his big toenail so that he could release the blood blister that was underneath his big toenail uh, to come out of it. It's yeah, it's pretty savage. So preparing your feet and learning to carry weight are the, the big things. Wow. And it strikes me that running on sand would be so different. Like I just think about like when you play beach volleyball even versus playing, you know, volleyball on a hard court and just what that does to your calves and your muscles when you're on that type of a sand as opposed to a hard surface. I mean, that just sounds incredible having to run marathon after marathon after marathon consecutively on the sand. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I'd actually been, tra I did the, the bulk of my heavy, heavy training while I was training to be a ski instructor. So I would finish six hours of skiing and then I would get off the slopes and I would run for three hours through the snow on the trails in Canada. So I was quite used to that. So it wasn't too bad, but it is a, it's a very different experience just because again, if you're not, if you're not sure footed, then your feet start slipping around inside your shoe. And once you get one blister, you start compensating and then you get two blisters. And yeah, before you know it, you're, you're a mess. Wow. Okay. And so then now with the skiing thing as well, you mentioned that this also was basically a meta learning application where from the first time you picked up skis until becoming a level two Canadian ski instructor, you did that in six months. Can you talk about that experience for you and what some of the leverage points were that you used to accelerate the skill that quickly? Yeah, I think there are probably three things that helped me improve fast. So the first was really breaking the skill down into its subcomponents. So in, in skiing, you have um, stance, pivoting and edging. And then within each of those skills, you have drills that you can run to work specifically on each of those things. So I was just really, I would never, every single turn when you ski is an opportunity to practice and to improve. And I would just try and stay really mindful every single time. Uh, the second thing was that I was the first person on the slope every single morning. I was always at the front of the queue every single day. And I would get an hour of extra training in before everyone else got up for their breakfast. And then the, the ski lesson started and I would just run drills every single day. And that sounds like nothing, but an hour every day for that amount of time makes a huge difference. Um, and the third thing is just not expecting, I sort of learned it from my, uh, from language learning beforehand, but for every learning journey, no matter whether you're learning a skill or whether you're learning knowledge, 
it's not linear. Everyone expects everything in life to be linear, right? But what actually happens is not even just uh, exponential in learning. You actually have these periods where you get what's called learning collapse, where you know you, you sort of get to a whole new level and all of the frameworks that your, your brain was working on to make the skill work, suddenly it's like a hermit crab having to step out of its shell and get into a new shell where suddenly all the new things you're learning can fit into the framework. And so what happens is you actually go backwards five steps. And so knowing that when I went started going backwards instead of forwards for a week or two, I didn't get disheartened. I just knew it was my brain moving on to the next level of, you know, learning how the different skis felt, learning what the different feelings were, what the different techniques were. So when you approach something like that and you go into skiing, having never done it before, do you set those types of goals for yourself at the outset where you say, I've never done this and I intend to master it. And this is how I'm going to do it. And this is how I'm going to this is the amount of time that I want to have this particular goal within. Do you do that from the beginning? Goal setting is a, a tricky one. A lot of people put themselves under too much because goal setting is iterative, right? So actually what I did is I did a month of skiing. I could have set the goal straight away, but what I did is I just went in and said, I'm going to do a month of skiing and see how it feels. And what I had by the time I set my goal is a whole load of data so that I could then set a realistic goal. If you try and set your goal up front and then run into it, what happens is you're going to set a bad goal because goal setting is itself a function of knowing how the skill works and how you're going to progress. So the best time to set a goal, I actually um, have written a post about learning all these kinds of things. And, and I, I say in there, the best time to set a goal is actually like a few weeks into starting to learn something, not straight away. If you go, I'm going to pass my journey an exam in five months and you do it on day one, that's just, you know, too many people do that and then try and stick to it, even though it was totally unrealistic at the beginning. So, so seeing goal setting is an iterative process in itself and, and gathering data before you start setting goals is really important. I think that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about language learning and what it means to you, why you're so passionate about it, and also the connection with traveling. I know you're right now studying uh, Bahasa Indonesian and you're here. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, about in general, your passion for languages, but also specifically why that's so important to you as a traveler when you're living in other countries? For sure. I think the thing that I love about languages is that every other topic or skill that you know, the better and better you get at it, the fewer people you can have an interesting conversation with. You know, if you're learning quantum physics, if you can talk about like super basic stuff, you can talk to, you know, many people who've learned a little bit about it. But when you become an expert, you can have a conversation with like one other interesting person in the world who knows what you're talking about. Languages are the opposite. So when you start out, you can only talk to like two or three people, but the better you get at it, the more and more people you can talk to, right? So it's this incredible skill that actually increases the amount of connections you can make uh, and the amount of interesting opportunities you unlock as you get better at it rather than diminishing them and rather than having to specialize. So I, I love that about languages. Um, I also love there's almost nothing closer to magic than walking into a country and not understanding anything on a sign. And then two months later, walking out and suddenly everything makes sense. And you're like, whoa, the thing that I love about the traveling is that there is nothing like when you connect with someone in their own language it opens an entirely different side to that person. You know, there are so many uh, Germans who I've met and connected to on a totally different level simply because the first words that I said to them were in German and they feel comfortable exploring that. Uh, in Mandarin is another one where people are quite guarded, especially when they're worried that they're going to communicate something wrong. But if you can speak to them in their own language, suddenly people just open up. It's like watching a flower just blossom and doing Russian while I was traveling through Central Asia was incredible for the amount of conversations that I had and the things that I learned that I would just never have been able to have if all I spoke was English. 
you have a lot of really substantive content on your website about language learning that you've put together, free content that we're definitely going to tell people how to go and, and check out. But can you share now a little bit of the tips that you have in terms of the real high leverage points for people that want to learn languages and they want to learn it as swiftly and efficiently as possible? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like all of this, so again, back to the structuring from McKinsey, like what you have to do is break the language down into its component parts. When you understand how language breaks down, it becomes really easy to then design a plan to go for it. So you have three theoretical components. You have pronunciation, uh, vocabulary and grammar, and then you have the four main skills, reading, writing, uh, listening, speaking, right? And once you know that those are the things, you can easily then design a syllabus that where you go, okay, I'm going to, for the first three weeks, I'm going to focus on, you know, pronunciation and basic vocabulary. And then I'm going to move into uh, grammar and then I'm going to start working on speaking and reading because those are really interesting. They're a very good way. And then once you break, again, learning a language is very hard. It's like this big intangible problem. But if you break it down into its subcomponents and then you break that down into its subcomponents. So once I know I'm doing pronunciation, I can go away and find the three drills that will improve my pronunciation. Or if I want to work on speaking, I know I'm going to go and do these three things in speaking. And then if I decide I'm going to do lessons, here are the four things I need to do in my lesson. Then suddenly you put all the little pieces together and the whole just emerges from it. And you have at some point in your life become conversational at a total of eight languages. And those are not just romance languages like French and Spanish. Those are Mandarin. Those are ancient Greek. Like yeah. you told me. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say conversation in Greek, but definitely was <laughs> good enough. But like I, what I love about languages, specifically yeah. two things. Firstly is the way that you speak limits the way that you think because we think in words, right? And so when I'm thinking in German, certain concepts are easier to think about than when I'm thinking in English or when I'm thinking in French or when I'm thinking in Mandarin, you know, that the, the language itself is kind of like building blocks. Imagine you had a whole load of different kinds of Lego blocks and each Lego block had its own characteristics. Some of them were slightly bigger, some were slightly smaller, some were rounded on the corners and some were longer and thinner. You know, you'd be able to create different constructions with different efficiency based on what set of Lego bricks you used. And so that's really interesting. And also just understanding then the way that those people think and the con the way that we conceptualize things like you know, the word love is totally different in every single language because of the, the, the things that sit underneath it, the ways that we experience it. And so when you start learning languages, you just start to see the world and understand other people's perspective on the world in a whole different way. Because even when a, a Russian person is talking to you in English, they're thinking the concepts that they're, even if they're not thinking about the Russian word, they're relating it to a Russian concept. Mm. And so as an Eng native English speaker, when you go to study foreign languages and get to a conversation or fluency level in those languages, I feel like the perception at least would be from most English speakers that learning these, you know, languages that have the same characters that look the same, like Spanish and French, they both have letters that look similar to what we know, versus if you were to study a language like Mandarin that Mandarin would be significantly more difficult and involved and challenging to learn. What have you found in studying those languages? I think the, the letters, the appearance can be deceiving. What you're really looking at is the root of the words, like how many cognates. So a cognate is a word that is the same in two languages. So like, you know, for German, Wochenende and Weekend, they're not exactly the same, but you can kind of guess what someone's talking about when they say them, right? So looking for those kind of overlaps makes a language much easier to learn. There's actually uh, on the language learning guide that I have on my blog, I list there are, there are three levels of language, three, I believe, given by the Foreign Language Institute, which list, if you're a native English speaker, how much more difficult they are to learn. 
I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. From each other. So Spanish is incredibly easy. Uh, Mandarin and Japanese are incredibly hard. And, and then you've got everything in between. Right. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I studied Arabic for a little, for example, living in the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. And some people perceive that it looks a lot more difficult because the characters look very different. But in fact, there's not that more, that many more characters. They just, the letters look different. There's a handful of sounds that they have that we don't have in English that you need to work on pronouncing. But as long as you can pronounce those handful of sounds, then you just understand the translation of this character into that character. You know, it's actually not that complicated. The grammatical structure is not that complicated and so forth. But it would strike me that Mandarin has a whole lot more characters, for example, right? Yeah. So vocabulary wise, so there are some languages where you have the, the, the difficulty of learning languages varies from language to language in terms of the profile of difficulty. So Russian is an example of a language which is incredibly difficult to start with because the grammar is just so complex. Right? There's so many different cases. The alphabet is easy. Once you get the alphabet, you can learn that in a, in a few hours, right? But the, the grammar, the getting over the initial grammar hurdle is really hard. But then after that, learning vocabulary is quite easy because there are actually, you know, there are similarities. It's not massively challenging. Mandarin is incredibly easy grammatically. So it's kind of like Lego bricks. Anyone can pick up, it, kind of like Bahasa as well. Anyone can pick it up and start using it grammatically correctly very quickly. But learning the vocabulary takes a lot longer and it takes a lot longer to start spotting patterns because you, you know, there's no real link until you get to a certain level. There are clues in the characters, but you don't know how to pronounce a character by looking at it. You have to have learned it separately. So you can learn to speak or you can learn to read pinion or you can learn to write characters, but all of those are almost separate skills. They don't link into each other. Right. Now, I know another skill that you've been passionate about and worked on developing is salsa dancing. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned to me that, uh, that that's in fact where you met your partner, Aaron, which I would love for you to share a little bit about that story, but also about what salsa dancing means to you in general and how your sort of salsa dancing journey learning experience has been in, in that as well. For sure. I mean, I think, um, so I've always loved I love exercise. Ever since I was a kid, like when I was at school, I do 24 hours a week of exercise, all different sports. And I've always just loved doing sport. Um, for me, there are two reasons that I did salsa. One, I was in Colombia and I wanted to do some kind of sport. Um, and two, uh, it's just like if you look at all the skills that I've learned, whether it's uh, languages or the running or, or the skiing, it was a way to... So the skiing I learned because my brother's an incredible skier. And I always thought if I... I learned to ski, I'll be able to go on holidays with him. So for me, salsa was a way to connect with the local people and also to meet other people. You know, it's just an amazing way to connect with people. It's a very, unlike dancing in the West, it's a very 
and uh, and some other kind of Hispanic dance is a very non-sexual dance. You can dance with your nonna and you can dance, you know, with whoever and, and it can be a very different thing. So, so that's why I picked it up. Um, it was just a lot of fun. You know, I'd never, I, it wasn't something ever since I was five. I was like, I want to be a, a salsa dancer. You know, I just got to Colombia and it was the thing you did in Medellin and I was there for three months and I thought I'm going to learn Spanish and learn to salsa. So. And when you salsa dance in other places around the world, Colombian salsa dancing is a particular type of salsa dancing, which is not exactly the same as Cuban salsa dancing in other areas. And so do you do Colombian salsa when you go to these other places or do you adapt locally or how do you do that? I, so I mostly learn uh, linear, which is just like the basic, there's like a, a sort of a central salsa, which everyone knows and is done all over the world. And then you have the local variety. And I did a little bit of the local variety, but I just mainly, I was at one point I was doing like two hours of salsa lessons a day, but I was just focusing on linear really. Uh, but Erin, my partner, did a lot of uh, the local salsa as well. So. Well, I'd love for you to talk about that actually, because one of the questions that I get a lot as a long-term nomad by people is questions about dating and relationships and, you know, is the nomad lifestyle conducive to finding love and finding a partner and all that kind of stuff. And so any reflections or experiences uh, that you have to share on that general concept and, uh, you know, on your experience, I would love to hear as well. Yeah, you know, I think easily, you know, one of the best things that's ever happened to me was walking into that salsa class and, and seeing, you know, I was... I'd actually given up on meeting anyone. So I was in the same position. I was like, look, you know, there are some incredible people. Uh, I was in a very heavy travel phase. So I wasn't as settled as I am now. And I would meet these incredible people, but we were all off going and doing our own thing. So you'd meet these, these people and then they'd be like, oh, I'm actually going to this different country. You'd be like, oh, well, I have different plans. And so there was no way for it to ever last a long time. And then I settled down in Medellin. I was just exhausted. I'd just done three months through Africa and then Antarctica. And I was like, I need a place to just chill out. And then I met Erin. And the first night I met her, I actually uh, text my local friends who I'd met um, at a meetup. And I was like, I think I've met the one. Like, this is the girl. She's amazing. And uh, and then, yeah, it's been three years. And uh, we spent three months getting to know each other there, which was, I think, an important thing. And then we just traveled to spent 23 hours a day together ever since. That's amazing. <laughs> now you're in Bali together. And she's from Sydney. So yeah, we both crossed the world to, to meet each other. That's so amazing. That's awesome. I love that story. All right. Let's go a little bit deeper into what you're doing now, Faster to Master. And, and, and maybe we can just start kind of broadly with the concept uh, you've, we've sort of touched around some different examples, but maybe just the concept of meta-learning and this concept that learning is a skill. And on your website, it says that learning is a skill and it's one that you can greatly improve and getting better won't just make you more productive, more successful and happier. It will transform every part of your life. Can you talk a little bit about that what is meta learning and what is faster to master and what inspired you to start it? Yeah. So I think, so I think meta learning is actually, um, it's the second phase and three phases of the, of the way that faster master grew. So, um, the reason I started when I originally started, it was actually called why, what, how, uh, based on Simon Sinek's talk, which I loved, which is this, you know, breaking down of the why, the what, and the how of everything. And I started doing book summaries because I was reading all of these incredible nonfiction books and I was looking for a way to internalize what I was learning because I was only getting away with big concepts. And I remembered back at university that the, the topics that I learned the most about were the ones that I actually synthesized in my own words. And so I started publishing these book summaries. And then the question, so there, there are a few questions that comes. One is like, what should I read? So that's why one of the things I do on the site is I do book recommendations. 
where I have this incredible Excel model, which I'll share with you one day, which is um, I basically like whenever someone gives me a recommendation, it goes into this model. And then I, I rip all of the data out of Goodreads. And there's an algorithm that ranks them all. So if you only read a thousand books in your life, you want to read the thousand best books that you can, right? Whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So the first thing is, what should I read? And then it's like, okay, well now, like, how do I learn well? You know, if I'm going to read all these books, how do I actually learn from it? Like, how do I make sure this is well invested time that I actually get from it? And that's where the book summaries and accelerated learning came in. And that's where my language learning and some of the skill learning came in. And then the third part of that equation is, okay, well, let's say I'm, I'm reading great books and I'm learning a huge amount. What do I do with that? You know, how do I put that to action in the world to make the world a better place for me and the people directly around me and then the wider uh, world as far as I can and manifest, you know, what it is that I've learned. And so those are the sort of three sort of big sections of Faster Master was, you know, read more, learn faster and be more productive. Right. They all lead into each other. Yeah. I have gone through your website pretty thoroughly and it is really impressive how much substantive and free content you have on your website, both in terms of your original content that you've written and created and shared in terms of a lot of things we've talked about, how you did the training for the marathon and how you do all these things, um, et cetera. But then also the amount of content that you've curated in terms of your categorized book recommendations, in terms of your book summaries and all that stuff. I mean, super, super, super high value website for sure. Definitely want to send people there to check that out. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, when people are starting off and they're approaching this, you know, for example, maybe we, we even start with the Traction Journal, which is one of your physical products, which I recently started using uh, and have found very helpful actually in my own life. But I would love for you to maybe even just start off with the concept of what the Traction Journal is, start off with the, you know, explaining about the wheel and then the concept of habits, values, metrics, and how people that want to get into this should vary from the very first step, sort of start thinking about it. Yeah. So, so the, the traction planner is basically the pointy end of a much bigger stick. And so people often, they start with the planner. You can start with the planner if you have nothing else. And its real goal is to help you take control of every single day. Uh, where a lot of planners go wrong, I think, is they try and build everything into one thing. They try and get you to set 90-day goals and then, you know, plan your days and then, you know, do all of this kind of thinking when actually, you know, the thinking, the big picture stuff doesn't belong in the trenches. It doesn't belong with you every day. And the 90-day goals, we talked about how, you know, a lot of people, they'll set a 90-day goal and then three weeks into the 90-day goal, the goal has changed because they've got more data. And then the, the first part of their planner is useless because they now have this 90-day goal, which doesn't make sense anymore. So it really is the, the, the super point end of the stick. And there's there's sort of three sections. The first is sort of daily pages, which uh, have sort of an ideal schedule, an actual schedule, your top priorities. It basically just helps you really take control of every single day. Then you have some weekly goals. And the weekly goals are really important because they're what determine what you do on a daily basis. So a lot of people have these big picture goals, and then they try and make a daily plan. And there's just this massive gap, right, between you know, what you want to achieve by the end of the year and what you're going to get on with tomorrow. So the weekly goal, there's two things. First, it's a big enough piece of con, like a big enough milestone that you get to the end of the week and you're like, wow, I actually achieved something this week. And second thing um, is that it's a small enough time frame that things aren't going to radically change in the space of a week. So you can actually get on top of your day. Uh, and then the last thing, so this is where it feeds more into the bigger traction methodology is um, at the front end, you have this wheel of life. So you have these eight areas of traction um, that I've created, which sort of span all the different areas of life and you basically work out okay well where where am i where am i falling behind in life you know what's the one area that's really dragging me back so instead of working on what's going really well it helps you 
sort of herd that lagging sheep to the front of the herd. Um, and then the, so the, the daily pages are helping you to take action every day on that. And then the pages, uh, there are some uh, habit trackers, value trackers, um, and metric trackers. And those are helping you to systematize patterns of behavior so that when you turn to a different part of your life, the next lowest part, you don't just suddenly have everything collapse. You know, it's not like I worked on this for 30 days and then you turn around, you know, you look, work on your health and fitness and then you go, okay, I'm going to work on my growth and learning. And then 30 days later, you're like, okay, well, everything I did in my health and fitness has fallen apart. So build, it helps you build, systematically build the habits up to then create these robust supports that, that create meaningful uh, changes in your performance. Yeah, I think that is really, really significant. Can you just share a little bit about what some of those different aspects of that life wheel are? Because when I went through that and I did that exercise, I thought that was really significant. It really made me think a lot because I feel like a lot of people, you know, we get very focused on one particular thing and it might be business or making money or for other people, it might be, you know, whatever else it is. But, But when I looked through all the different categories that you had on that wheel, and then tried to evaluate where am I in my life in each of those categories. That was actually a really profound exercise. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those categories are and why it's important for someone to go through that exercise? 100%. So so, so traction is a wider philosophy. Um, I call it uh, end-to-end productivity. And it's end-to-end because it's vertical. So it goes all the way from your missions down to what you're going to do next, but also goes horizontally across those eight different areas of life. And what happens is people tend to start out with daily to-do lists and they start with goals. And most of the goals they set are in their business and career because that's where, you know, we're most hectic. There's a lot of pressure. We want to earn money. We want to, you know, get our financial freedom. But what we end up doing is we become, there's this great quote, which I love from Sam Walton, who is the founder of Walmart. And his famous last words were, I blew it. Right. And his famous last words were, I blew it. Not because he didn't build a, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. They were, they blew, I blew it because he didn't do anything else in the other parts of his life. You know, he barely knew his own children. He said his wife only stayed with him out of duty, you know, which is horrible, right? But you are what you repeatedly do. So if you set all your goals in business and career, then you'll just focus on business and career. And then you'll go, you, you get into this pattern where you go, next year, I'll focus on all the other parts of my life. And then next year, and then next year, and next year, and all those years fly past. So the, the whole point of, of the eight different areas is it forces you to take a holistic perspective on your life. So um, it solves you. And, and what that does is not only make your goals more meaningful, but it also makes them more balanced so that you're not fighting fires in those areas, which are then, you know, people go, I'll oh, just focus on my business and career. But what ends up happening is kind of like having the lowest scoring areas are like chains on the back of your life. So those areas are the sort of four big areas are um, health, uh, relationships, sort of growth and productivity, and then uh, wealth um, around career and lifestyle. And then the sub areas are health and vitality, uh, thoughts and emotions, friends and family, love and partnership, uh, growth and learning, productivity and performance, business and career and wealth and lifestyle. Yeah. So I I thought that was a really, really significant exercise because you kind of go into this thinking like, okay, this journal is going to do one thing for me. And then it's like step one is to do this entire evaluation of your own life. And some of the parts of that wheel, you're like, oh, actually, maybe I've been neglecting some of these other parts. So maybe I actually need need to deal with those parts first, you know, to get those parts up. And that's actually going to improve my overall situation. hundred percent. So the, so whatever, so the way the planner works is whatever area of life that you score the lowest on in terms of satisfaction, wherever you feel you're, you're stagnating, that becomes the first habit that you set, the first value that you track and the first metric you track. And if those concepts aren't 
easy to explain. We can either deep dive into them or there's lots of lots of explanations on the site. And then also the first action that you take every single day have to relate to that area for the next 30 days, right? And so what happens is that over the course of 30 days, you're taking daily action to make an improvement. It doesn't have to be huge, right? It could, if it's health and vitality, it could be like, I walk to this place instead of taking my bike or whatever it is, or I do 20 minutes of, or I do five press-ups, you know, whatever it is, right? But it's a little action every day that's going to improve it. And then the habits, values, and metrics, like I said, are building those, they're systematizing the behaviors that are then going to prop that up when you turn to whatever the next area of your life that is you're going to work on. And you're doing that on a four-week cycle. Maybe the health and vitality thing stays that main area for three months. That's okay. That's cool, right? You work on it until it's not your lowest scoring area. And then you move on to the next lowest scoring area. And this is this is attacking not only the competence section of the productivity uh, three stages that we talked about, but also the, the work-life balance or the, the life balance section. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really important because I feel like a lot of people also, the other thing that we have a tendency to do is to want to stay in the areas where we're doing well and take those to the next level because we feel confident and we feel good about ourselves and we feel that we're good in those areas. And so we want to spend as much time in those areas as possible because that's where we get the most affirmation and that's where we have the most confidence. In these other areas, we sometimes may tend to neglect or steer clear of because we're not as strong in those areas. But in fact, those, of course, are the areas that we really should be focusing on. For sure. Sure. I mean, everyone's seen that guy in the gym who does nothing but bicep curls, right? And that guy looks like an idiot. And when you go for a run with him, can he do all of the other stuff? Like, is he a well-rounded person? No, he's just got like really weird looking biceps. And that's what a lot of people become like in life, right? They just work on one area. And what that ends up happening is then they get injuries in other parts of their life, you know? So they really want their business and career to succeed. So they, they work on that. They just do that. And then actually they're really unhappy because they have no love and partnership in their life, or they have no friends and family that they've worked on because they've just neglected those areas. And despite their best efforts, those things end up limiting their performance in business and career because they end up either having to fight fires or, you know, feeling negative about or not feeling enthused. They have no no wider sense of of balance and meaning going on. And so that actually holds them back rather than than helping them move forwards. Yeah, 100% agreed with that. So I am super enjoying the Traction Planner. Let me ask you this, though. You also do a Traction Revolutionary Productivity Masterclass. And the proposition there is get organized, work less, and live more meaningfully in just 42 days guaranteed. Can you talk about what that productivity masterclass is about and what your students experience there? Yeah, for sure. So the wider traction system, that's really diving into the the sort of the broader picture of end-to-end productivity. So the, the traction planner is the pointy end of the stick and the rest of the system. So, so, you know, let's say, so the first thing that people do is they go, okay, I'm going to do, they have their daily to-do list and then they have their, um, their big picture goals. And then they start doing their weekly goals. And then uh, what we do is we work on them to do their visions um, and their mission. Like, so their vision is like, okay, when you go, well, what, what am I on a, a scale from one to 10 in this part of my life? If you don't know what 10 looks like, how can you give that scale? Right. So it's helping people get clear on what awesome looks like in each part of their life and then to come up with a big picture mission over the top. But not only to do that on a theoretical level, but actually to have the system. So to create a place for everything, this like really uh, very simple, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's going to be super complex. It's not. It's super, super simple. You can do it with eight pieces of paper, super simple system to create a place for everything. 
and then the processes, the day-to-day checklist that put everything in its place. So I think of it kind of like if you imagine a tube of marbles where your mission is at the top and what you're going to do tomorrow is at the bottom, the system uh, helps create all of the tubing and the marbles help you pick out the bottom marble every day. So when you pick out the bottom marble, everything else just flows into it from the top so that everything you do every day leads up to something bigger. But also when you do your big picture thinking, you know that it's going to translate down into actual meaningful stuff you're going to do tomorrow. I see so many people like, oh, have you done your visions? And they're like, oh yeah, I did them 10 years ago. I'm like, do they actually impact anything you do on a day-to-day basis? They're like, no. I'm like, well, but this is what I, it's not their fault, right? We're not taught this stuff. That's the incredible thing about this. Like no one taught me this stuff in school. I had to piece this from all of the different systems together. And so it's creating this end-to-end system that works on both a theoretical and a practical level. And it's not, it is an incredible, simple thing. You know, it doesn't say you have to get up at five o'clock every morning. My least favorite productivity tip is this thing about grit that everyone always goes on about. Grit is the biggest myth ever. It just makes your life miserable, right? If you go through life thinking you just have to be gritty about everything, don't work hard, work smart. You can actually just find ways to inspire yourself and stay motivated, which also help you get things done and are fun, you know? Um, and so that's the kind of thing that we talk about in the course of that whole sort of big plethora of stuff. So let's go through and, and break this down in a little more granular level. One of the things that you go through at the early stage of this is creating a not to-do list. Can you talk about what is a not to-do list and why is that important? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of people think productivity is about doing more, right? I tend to think um, initially for a lot of people, productivity is like a garden. If you've planted all of the good stuff in there, then what you actually need to do is just get rid of the weeds that are choking all of that stuff out, right? And the garden will grow into a beautiful garden by itself. So instead of thinking about always doing more, it's about thinking, how can I do less? Like, how can I take away? So what the first thing we actually do, the, the first ingredient is to is to get clear on where your time is. Like, what is it that you're actually doing? So both on a, I get people to do two things. One is to create a life inventory, um, sort of work out what are the people, pastimes, promises, possessions, and projects that are taking up all of their time. And then also to start tracking their time because that's where you work out where you're actually spending your time, right? Oh, I didn't realize, I had one client who was like, I didn't realize I was watching YouTube on the loo for half an hour every day. You know, that's something that has to go on my not to do list, right? Because those half an hour is over five days a week, you know, amount up to time that you could be spending with loved ones, you know, with your kids, with your family, all that kind of stuff instead of procrastinating. So step one is is all about uh, the first two weeks of the the course. The really juicy stuff, I think, is the, the missions and visions. It's weeks three, four, five, and six, and then putting the system together. But the most important thing initially is to work out what's not important and how do you get that off your off your plate. Right. And then can you talk a little bit about tactics for getting rid of procrastination one of the things that I think a lot of us run into is we find ourselves procrastinating. We find ourselves distracted and kind of things creeping in that take us out of our focus flow states and other types of things and procrastinate from the things that are going to move the needle the most. Can you talk a little bit about why do we do that um, and what do we do to reduce procrastination? 100%. The first thing that's really interesting, you talk about we find ourselves procrastinating. Most people don't find themselves procrastinating. They just procrastinate, <laughs> right? And they don't realize until, I've done this, right? They don't realize until they're like 45 minutes into a YouTube vortex that they're procrastinating. <laughs> or, you know, even if it's even if it's less obvious, maybe they're just like dealing with admin tasks that really aren't the important thing they need to work on, right? So the first thing that I work with people on is you've got to become an expert at what you do when you procrastinate. So I create with uh, with everyone, my clients, with the people on the course, this I call it this observation. On unhappiness, and you just start making a note. What's the stuff that you do when you're not happy? 
right? Maybe it's you you go for a snack. Maybe it's that you know you you like browse shopping websites. Maybe you, there's a blog that you visit. You know, maybe everyone has their own thing, right? So number one is like become an expert on when you're procrastinating. And what that will do is help you get more mindful about when you're actually procrastinating. You'll suddenly be like, oh, I'm procrastinating. And you'll catch it instead of 45 minutes in, you'll catch it 20 minutes in or and then 10 minutes and then two minutes, right? So that's step one. And then uh, after that, so again, it, it all comes down to structuring. Like when you break, procrastination is such a, it's such a like big problem. Like how do you tackle it? But if you break it down, so I talk about the four different causes of procrastination, right? So there's lack of clarity, lack of courage, uh, lack of motive and lack of energy, right? And once you understand that those are the four causes, so once you, A, you catch yourself early, you know that you're procrastinating instead of being already in the, in the middle of the storm where it's hard to get out, you catch yourself early. And two, then you can ask yourself, okay, well, why am I procrastinating? Like, what is it? Is it that I don't know what needs to happen next? Is it that I know what needs to happen next, but I'm afraid of doing it? Is it that this actually isn't meaningful to me, or maybe that I haven't framed it in a way that's meaningful to me. You know, I, I haven't connected it to my bigger picture goals, or is it that I'm just really tired and hungry and miserable, you know, and I just need a nap or a sleep. Once you know that, then actually I, do, I have a, a post on my blog, which is like, you know, 21 ways to not procrastinate. And it breaks these into those different areas. But once you know that, actually you, you will come up with your own best solution. There is like, once you know why, once you ask the right questions, the solutions become obvious. And can you also talk about the importance of rituals and routine and habit? And so once you are, you know, going through this productivity transformation, right, and you're developing this new life management system, how do you sustain that? And what is the importance of ritual? Yeah, so I think um, so processes are the lifeblood of your system. They're the heartbeat. Um, that go through. Um, there's this amazing cartoon that I love, right? And uh, there's this guy and he goes into a cave and he opens this chest and it's got the scroll of truth. And then it's a classic Reddit sort of, you know, meme. And then on the truth, it says GTD, which is getting things done. Like your productivity system didn't fail you. You just skipped too many weekly reviews. And then he like, he's like, meh, and he casts it away. But if the productivity system is the body, then the processes are the heartbeat and the lifeblood that help you pump that and keep it clear, current, um, and keep you trusting your system, right? If you don't trust the system, you won't use it. So you have to, to do those things. There are like a whole load of different processes. It's like a weekly review, a PM review, an end of work shut down an AM review, and then sort of ad hoc planning that keep your system alive. And really, so there's a separation here. You've got those processes and then you talk about habits. So habits is simply the ritualization of a process so that it happens without you having to think about it too much. And there are, there are two kinds of habits. There are habits you want and there are habits you don't want. And what you're really trying to do, the, the essence of understanding humanity is that we kind of stop at the top of this hill every single day and our brain just follows the path of least resistance down that hill, right? And so if you want to, to make yourself follow the path that you want to follow down, you have two things you can do. You can put barriers in the way of the habits that you don't want to do. It's kind of like blocking off water so, you, so it goes down a different path and you can unblock uh, habits that you do want to do. And one of the ways to unblock them is to practice them, but there's many other things you can do, like change your environment. And the same goes for, for habits that you, you know, you, you want to stop. You know, if you catch yourself always on your phone when you're supposed to be working, then simply put your phone in a different room or even a really effective way is just to hide it behind your laptop. What you're doing, these small little barriers, I have this, this idea, which I love, which is that friction is the enemy of action, right? Friction is the enemy of action. So if you create friction for the stuff you don't want to do and you remove it from the things that you do want to do and you just do that in a thoughtful, systematic way, you'll actually find that you get incredibly good at building habits that, that start to compound over time. Right. 
Now, I assume that certain aspects of optimizing productivity are individualized to the person, meaning like, are you a morning person? Are you a night person? When do you, you know, have the most productive, you know, time of day to work and all that kind of stuff? And there's not one particular formula that all humans fall into. So some of that I assume has to do with self-awareness and self-auditing and all that kind of stuff, correct? Yeah, correct. So so the whole reason I call the system traction is uh, very cleverly, it's got the word track in it. And uh, I was being sarcastic, uh, just in case people think I actually think it's clever. <laughs> because I, I like, I honestly believe, so we talked about pr- procrastination was a really good example, right? I don't need to tell you how not to procrastinate. I just need to give you the clarity and the data so that you know you're, you're procrastinating and why you're procrastinating. And then you're a super smart guy. You'll come up with your own solutions. So what all of the system does, like the thing that I'm really hot on is creating two things. First is clarity. What is actually going on? Like, what is going on in your life? Are you hitting your habits or are you not hitting them? You know, don't, it's so, like the human brain, you probably can't remember what you had for breakfast yesterday, right? So if you try and remember how you're doing on putting a habit in place, it's just not going to happen. So tracking your habits over time, just two things. Firstly, it creates clarity. Is that happening or not? And secondly, it creates accountability. There's only so many times you can look at a habit tracker and put an X in it or mark the same area of your life in a planner as being the lowest scoring area before you're just going to start it's just embarrassing for you. You know, you're just going to start making changes. So one of the things that I really focus on in this system is, is not telling people what the answer is, but creating systems that it's giving them tools so that they can use those tools however they want. Like how they actually use those tools is totally up to them. I'm not like, this is what you must do. It's just like, hey, here's a tool. Once you know what's going on and you've got like all of the toolkit in front of you, then you can pick up whichever, you're a person, you'll probably find the more creative way to pick up those tools and actually use them in a good way. Can you share, I'm curious in your tips on this. One of the things that I find as an entrepreneur (laughs) that a lot of other entrepreneurs I think also find is that we have this concept of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And sometimes things go up and business is going well. And sometimes, you know, you just wake up in the morning and there's just, you know, something catastrophic happens or like, you know, I mean, this is the life of business owners that I know. What tips do you have in terms of emotional energy conservation? Meaning like the night before I fill out my planner and I'm planning to do all of these things the next day. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a big setback or something happens and I get just, you know, this entrepreneurial kind of gut punch, which takes all this emotional energy out of me. Do you have tips on how to conserve and stabilize your emotional energy to remain productive in spite of a variation of things that can happen on your business journey? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, there's actually a lot more to that question than meets the eye, right? Because you, you know, you hit it on so many different levels, the why, the what, and the how, right? So, so I say this to people all the time. If you are thinking uh, like a level five, right? And then level five problems come up. Those level five problems are like your whole world. They're the same size as you, right? But if you understand why you're doing stuff, if you're thinking big picture and you're thinking level 10, then suddenly when a level five or a level four problem comes up, instead of being your whole world, it's like half the size of you, right? So having this understanding of why is super, super important because it just puts everything into perspective. You're like, oh, this didn't go well, but that's okay. Because actually, let's say, uh, you know, I'm like running a marathon, right? And I get to mile four instead of it being the end of a four mile race where I'm like, oh, it's the end. I'm like, oh, this is mile four in a, you know, 21 mile race or I actually think in kilometers and marathons. But like, you know, so, so the, the it becomes small by 
comparison to what it is that you're aiming for. So getting clear on the big picture and always looking to reframe in a way that's really interesting. So so Erin is a great example right now. She's trying to find a, a manager, um, a general manager for her business so that she can get out of the day-to-day running. And it was causing her a lot of stress. And her big picture thing that we've talked a lot about is she wants to get to a point where she can mentor and inspire um, female entrepreneurs to pass uh, over the seven-figure market, some crazy small figure of female entrepreneurs who ever actually make it past that. And so what happened is overnight, instead of looking at it as a like, I'm in my business and I need to find a general manager and this is a total mess, what am I going to do? She was like, actually, this is a super valuable experience because all of the people I'm going to coach one day are going to go through this. And this is the big picture I want to get to. This is just a small, small part of a bigger journey, right? And that tiny mental trick totally changed the way that she, she looked at and felt about that problem. So that's the first bit of why. And do you have, for you personally, what types of stress management or stress reduction or stress mitigation techniques do you personally practice when in your either business or personal life, something all of a sudden there's a giant spike and something crazy stressful happens? How do you process that? What do you do to manage that stress so that you can continue on with your other priorities? Yeah, for sure. So I think there are two ways. The first is just expectations. You know, if you just have to renegotiate your expectations. If you think this thing was going to happen in a week and it now looks like it's going to happen in four weeks, stop going through the three weeks like it should have happened two weeks ago. Just renegotiate your expectations so it's going to happen in four weeks' time, right? It's no, it's no big deal. But for most people, it sounds really obvious, but what most people never do is give themselves that permission to just renegotiate it, right? The second thing is that everything is harder when you're tired. Everything is harder when you're tired, right? And I actually sent an email out to my list today about this. There are three kinds of tiredness. There's saturation, there's tiredness, and there's exhaustion. Uh, sorry, there's fatigue, right? And what people, once again, once you know what you're suffering from, it becomes easy to come up with these things. So saturation is like, I'm just like too in the thick of this. I've done two, if you if all you ate was spaghetti every single day for a week, you would never want to hear the word spaghetti ever again, right? You'd be like this, I can't look at another spaghetti. But if you mix it in with other kinds of meals and suddenly it becomes something that you could eat every, you know, every like happily for the rest of your life, right? So that's that's satiety. So mix up your work and, and just make sure you keep it interesting. You know, focus on something else. Like it's not the end of the world, right? Second thing is tiredness. Like, you know, hydrate, eat, get a snack, but make sure you're getting your eight hours of sleep. If you sleep, there are so many times in the world that I faced a, a world ending problem. And then after a good night of sleep, it just looks infinitely smaller. Am I right? You know, it's such a simple thing, you know, napping, sleeping, like sleep hygiene and, and food hygiene and, and that kind of thing. And the third one, which is the one that I really struggle with and a lot of people uh, struggled with was um, this idea of fatigue. So it's kind of like a mobile phone. You know, you buy your, I've still got my crappy iPhone 6S from, I bought it from a backstreet market in Beijing like five years ago. And like when I bought it, I charge it once and I get through the whole day and it would be totally energized for the whole day, right? And then what would happen over time now, it lasts three hours and then it cuts off magically at 15% just when I need to call my Uber driver to work out where it is that I'm going to go, right? And that's what happens to people. If you don't take meaningful breaks where you allow the maximum level of your battery to reset back to a higher level, you oversell you over time, you'll run yourself down. So instead of starting at a hundred, you'll wake up every day starting at 40. So you won't be tired, but you'll be fatigued, right? So making sure you take breaks ideally. So we do four weeks on and then we take four days off, right? Every single four week cycle, we take four days of just nothing, just total work. Today I got up, what I, I spent on Tuesday last week before my break, it took me seven hours to try and write one email. Uh, when I got up on uh, Monday this morning after four days off, it took me less than an hour to write an email. That was probably one of the best emails I've ever written. That's the difference of like making sure that you're not tired and you're not fatigued and then approaching the same problem after those two different things. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about 
your and we just mentioned a minute ago that this is obviously something that's you know needs to be individualized for each person and optimized and all that but for you personally can you share how your day structure looks your morning routine your evening routine and how you personally have chosen and have identified is optimal for you how do you structure your day so I think I'll actually, I'm going to start on a week level. So I split days into three kinds of days. I have A days, B days, and C days. An A day is a work day um, where I'm basically working on my major projects. A B day is a planning day where instead of doing the work, I'm actually setting myself up for success. So I'm getting clear, getting current and planning the next week. And then a C day is a total day off. No phones, no structure, no alarms, no nothing. So on a sort of, uh, on a typical week, I'll do five A days, one C day and one B day. So that's five work days, one total relaxation day. And then my Sunday is my B day where I do a half day. I just like clear my decks of everything that I didn't clear from the week before and then set myself up for success. So a typical A day for me, um, and this is here in Bali, but it changes all the time, right? This is just like my current steady state. The big picture is we get up at five and we work from 5.30 until 12.30 every day. And then that's it. I'm done. No more work. Everything is finished. And then from 12.30 onwards, I'm spending on things that I love, sports, the people I care about, calling friends, uh, learning languages, uh, being here with you, you know, all these things, right? So so the reason that I can sit here and be super chilled out is because I know I've already done on, by 12.30, damn it, by seven, I've done more than most people have done in the entire day, right? And then how that morning breaks out is I, I'll do, I'll wake up, do half an hour of meditation, then I do one two-hour deep work session. Then I have a break for breakfast, which is 15 minutes at the moment because it's in our co-working, I do another two hours of deep work and then I do a 15 minute meditation session and then I do two hours of deep work and then I do 30 minutes of an end of work shutdown. So what I've done is I've meditated for 45 minutes basically before lunchtime. Um, I've had my breakfast and I've done six hours of deep work. But And then I've also done an end of work shutdown, which is where I've just like basically made sure that there's nothing that's going to stress me out for the rest of the day. That's it. Sign off. Do you have, I mean, in terms of what you do and tactics and so forth, are there specific things that you would definitely recommend or think would definitely be universally applicable for most people? Yeah, I think, I think there are a lot. Um, I think the where people get confused is that uh, there are me- very many what's, which are very important. And there are very few how's, which are absolute non-negotiables, right? So what is like mindfulness? So if you if mindfulness includes simply coming back to yourself in the present moment and being conscious of how you're feeling, what your sensations are, what you're thinking, it also includes meditation. So mindfulness and being present is a what that is absolutely hands down important for everyone. But how you go about it is up to you. You know, if you want to do it through like crystal meditation and chanting, do it through crystal meditation. If you want to do it by, I have these wristbands on my wrist. That's how I track my mindful moments. The how is is your thing. So the principles are few, but the, the ways of implementing them are many. Makes sense. What tips do you have in terms of being a good relationship partner and attending to your relationship and also balancing that with your business and other goals in life? In other words, for somebody who's not in a relationship and they're doing their business thing and their lifestyle design thing and their health thing and all that, and then the relationship comes into it, that's now a massive piece of your life, right? I mean, I'm sure before and after your relationship started, you know, big difference there, right? So how do you and what tips do you have for balancing and nurturing and giving the proper attention to the relationship within the context of all the other stuff you're doing? Yeah, this is going to sound um, not romantic at all, but I think it's an interesting point that, that a lot of people will resonate with. We've all hired people who are an absolute nightmare. 
right, to deal with from day one. And no matter how much work you put into trying to make that person, make that working relationship work, it's a catastrophe, right? And it takes all your energy and there's constant compromise and things don't happen how they have. And we've all worked with people who are just amazing, right? You hire them and they just get everything done, right? You barely have, you know, it just works, right? And I think with partnership, like that is super, super important is that you have to pick someone who it just works with, right? So many people are just so desperate to find someone that they'll pick anyone, right? Their criteria is that this person also wants to meet someone else, right? And that's it. And they're like, oh, we kind of find each other physically attractive and we're both looking for a relationship. So let's try and make this work. But if you, that's kind of like, you know, then it's a total lottery, right? You might end up with someone great. You might not. But if your criteria from day one is like, I'm going to, I want to be with someone who's a genuine partner to me, who isn't hard work, not because, you know, they give up everything they want just to be perfect for me, but where we just are, we work really well together. And having that patience to find that person, you have to almost get to the point where you would be happy never meeting someone for the rest of your life and just being totally grounded in the fact that if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. That's the moment where you'll find the patience to wait for the person instead of wasting your time on Tinder and with these you know silly dates where it's never going to work on things. That's where you'll find the patience and also the clarity to meet someone where it's really going to work with them. Mm, because you mentioned that you were basically in that position yourselves where you were not in the mindset of... Yeah. So I did I did two things. So just before I met Aaron, um, I'd actually uh, been on a nine-month ban of any kind of intimacy uh, whatsoever um, with anyone. So, and I'm talking uh, not like, you know, one night stands, no, but not even flirting, no emotional intimacy with anyone whatsoever. And it showed me, initially it was enforced, right? Because it basically started because I was traveling through Central Asia with my mom for two months. And that is not a set of conditions where you're going to be able to carry on any kind of romantic liaison. And what I learned, and I just broke, I'd broken up, not just broken up, but a, a few months beforehand, I'd broken up with a, a girl who I was with for um, a year and a half. And it made me, suddenly it was thrown into stark relief how important that was to my sense of self-validation. And I constantly, I, you know, that's how I validated myself was someone else finding me valuable. And even though it was horrible and even though it was difficult, I thought it was an interesting experiment. And so I carried it on and it totally changed the way that I interacted with people and also the way that I interacted with myself. And that for me was a big transition moment. Did you, how did you structure that for yourself? Did you say, I'm not going to engage with people in this way for, for a specific period of time? Did you have an end cap on that? Like, how did you design that for yourself and, and implement it? There was, there was no real design. It just, I was just learning a lot about myself. And so I carried it on for as long as possible. And I think the, the moment for me that really made it powerful was when I met someone who I really probably could have had a great relationship with. You know, we could have been really great together and to say no to that, it's very easy to, you know, you get very quickly, you can say no to the bad relationships. You know, you go, actually, like I've got out of that thing. But to meet someone, because there are many, many people who you could have wonderful relationships with, to meet someone who it could have been wonderful with and to have, to be okay with just saying, like, no, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pursue this. And to make that a choice suddenly makes you realize, and then you go away and you meet another person like that. You're suddenly like, you know, it's that classic mindfulness thing of this too shall pass, right? You realize that all of those things are transient and it gives you the patience to realize that even if you say no to this opportunity, there'll always be a, another one that comes around. So how did you, when you said no to those repeated opportunities, how did you then, what was different about when you were presented with, when you met Aaron, what struck you as fundamentally different with that opportunity than the previous ones you were presented with? Part of it was timing. Like I kind of just come to the end of it. Like it got to a point where it's hard to explain when you, 
I call these NECA cube moments, right? I, I don't know if you know what a NECA cube is. It's like a wireframe cube. And depending on how you look at it, uh, the back face can look like it's at the front or the fr- look it up. If you Google NECA cube, you'll see what I mean. But it's these moments where nothing changes, but everything changes. Your whole perspective shifts, right? The whole way that you see the world. And I kind of had just gone through one of those moments where I kind of like looked at it's like suddenly being able to see in color and then you look back and realize that you'd suddenly seen the world. And it, it's very hard to explain, but I think people will understand what I mean. And I kind of just gone through that journey. And so I was then just not so worried about it. It wasn't important anymore. You know, I didn't need to prove anything to myself. It, it had just changed, right? It had changed. And so then when I met Erin, I was kind of out of that phase. And, and then I also just had this incredible connection from the very like first moment. Um, and there are very few friends. I think this, the same is true of friends. There are very few lifelong friends or serious relationships that I've ever had where I didn't know from the very first second, almost probably before the first second, that I was going to have a lifelong friendship with that person. That's amazing. Awesome. All right. Arthur, at this point, are you ready to move into the lightning round? Yes. <laughs> I don't, actually, I wasn't prepared for this. So <laughs> let's do it. All right. Now you curate a lot of book lists and you read a lot of books. And so my normal first lightning round question is to recommend one book, (laughs) (laughs) which I know is going to be insanely hard for you. So maybe I'll even, maybe I'll just open it up a little bit wider than that. And if you want to name more than one, like your top three or something, but books that have really significantly impacted you over the years that you would most recommend that people check out? You can name one or you can name more than one. I think when people say this, my instant question back is what's the problem you're trying to solve, right? A book is a is an answer and it needs a question. But for me, this is not saying that I think you should go away and read these books. It really depends on who you are and, and what's important to you right now. For me, I think the three I would pick, uh, for me, Tim Ferriss's um, four-hour work week was just one of those moments which blows your mind. You're like, wait, I don't, you mean life can be different? You mean this actually works? You mean the world is... And so for me, that was something which just opened up this realm of possibilities I never thought would happen. And then when it comes to productivity, the two... Um, there are many good productivity books and I have a whole 70 list of 70 top productivity books, but the two which had the biggest influence on me were, um, getting things done by David Allen and the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. Uh, those are two books where if you were like, you can only read two books ever and base everything you do for the rest of your life on them. I could reread those books again and again and again and again. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using other than the ones you've created yourself, like the, uh, like the traction planner, but what is one app or productivity tool that you would recommend to people? I'm not going to, it would be easy to name a productivity app, but I think again, those are those things where like you could pick any productivity app. And as long as you use it, as long as you don't let the app dictate how you use it and you know what you want out of the app, you can use anything. I think the, the, the tool and app that has most changed my life in the last few years has actually been the iPad Pro and Notability and using the Apple Pencil. I'm a big paper fan. I love thinking on paper. I do everything on paper. I do all my learning on paper. I do all my brainstorming. I, I do all my journaling uh, and being able to get rid of paper and just, uh, it was the first, I tried it years and years ago with the Griffin pens and the old iPads and it just didn't work. Uh, that's been uh, amazing. So now I have, and I even do all my traction planner on my iPad. So Awesome. If you could have dinner with one person who's currently alive today that you've never met before, could be anybody, author, celebrity, public figure, movie star, like any person that's currently alive today, 
who would you choose? Just you and this person for an extended conversation, three hour plus dinner. Who would you choose and why? It sounds really, really silly, but I'd probably choose my dad. And I choose him before everything happened. You know, that I think one of the saddest, the biggest regrets in my life is that I only ever knew my dad as a child. You know, I, and now the older I get, the more you realize your parents are flawed, the less you blame them and the more you empathize with them. And I just can't imagine the suffering that he must have gone through to to do what he did to himself. He had everything and he threw it away. Um, and so I would love to sit with him and get to know him. I'm, it's a huge regret in my life that that will never happen. Mm. If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now and everything that you've been through in life and all that you've learned up to this point, and you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Arthur? <laughs> I think the the thing that many of us suffer with, and I wouldn't have understood it, so it's kind of silly advice, but it would have just been that you are enough just as you are. Awesome. What is one content medium? It could be a podcast you listen to, a blog that you read, anything other than your own content that you would recommend that people check out. I mean, book, I just love books. Yeah. I think you know people always go, uh, oh, I wish I had more mentors in my life. I'm like, if you had a mentor... And you came to him and he was like, hey, can you give me your top 10 tips? He would probably just give you his book or her book, right? You know, whoever you want to mentor you, they've put the best knowledge they have down on paper and they've spent tens, hundreds of hours refining that into pure gold. So just find whoever it is that you admire, whoever your hero is and find what they've written. Awesome. All right. Last two questions are travel related questions. And you've been to over a hundred countries. I know this is probably going to be a difficult question, but I want to ask you for your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to. So I have, I split travel into three things. I split it into a place to live, a place to travel and a place to go on holiday. Right. So I'm going to give you three. Um, I think it's a, a good way to do it. So a place to live would be uh, Changu. This is home. Every time the, the plane touches down here, I'm like, I'm back. This is home for us now. A place to travel. Uh, the region would probably be Central Asia. Um, if I had to pick uh, one, it would probably be Iran because the world could have gone in two different ways. If the Greeks hadn't beaten the Persians, we would all be living in a very different world right now. And there's so much history there. Um, it's a stunning place. And then to go on holiday, this is a kind of left field, but useful for anyone who's in Bali. Uh, East Timor uh, is uh, has the second most uh, diverse reef after Raja Ampat in the world um, and is just this incredibly, it's one of those, I think it's the second youngest country on the planet. Um, and uh, if you can get out to a Taro Island and dive the reef out there, you'll see the most incredible uh, sea life that you'll ever, you'll ever get the chance to see. Awesome. All right. Last question. You've been to over 100 countries, but you haven't been to every place in the world. So at this point in your travel journey, what are your top three bucket list destinations that are at the top of your list right now you've never been to and you most want to see? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to give you a structure again for this. So when I, I prioritize countries, I think mainly about three things. The first is uh, internal priorities. So uh, wh which places are going to get harder to visit as I get older, as I have kids, things like that. External priorities. So these are countries that are changing incredibly fast. Um, and the third one uh, is excitement. Just which one would I want to go and see which one I'm excited for. So uh, if I do in reverse order, excitement, I'd love to go to the North Pole. Um, I haven't been there to, uh, to the Arctic. That would be a place that I'd be super excited to just go and visit. If I think about um, internal urgency, I'd love to travel West Africa. 
Um, so I've seen a lot of Africa, but to go along the West Coast through all of those countries uh, down there, you know, even through Nigeria and, and Togo and Burkina Faso and all these places, which is, they're just a total empty space for me. I have no idea what I'd expect there. And in terms of um, external urgencies, so places that are changing really fast, I've been to quite a few of those, but I think China um, I've spent a month in Beijing and a month traveling through China, but China has the same land area as the United States and three times the population, but all of it lives in this tiny little portion in the in the Yangtze Basin. So to go and see um, China, especially with my Mandarin, to go and meet the people and, and learn uh, more about Chinese culture and history would be amazing. I think those are really good picks. I have never been to mainland China. I've only been to Hong Kong and Macau. And I feel like in addition to cities like Shanghai, right now is the number one city in the world that I've never been to on my list that I want to visit. But China, I feel like when you see those like lists on Facebook or whatever of like the hundred most insanely gorgeous landscape, you know, pictures in the world, 20 to 30% of them are in China. It just has this like bonkers epic scenery. It's so enormous. 20% of the world's population or something like that lives yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Mandarin, of course, is the most spoken first language in the world. Like it's just such a massive part of the world that I've never been to. So I totally agree with that. And then West Africa, I was actually in West Africa for three months this really? year earlier. Um, so I would love to, uh, yeah, if you want tips on that, I went through Nigeria. Ivory Coast, Ghana, and Senegal. Amazing. And it was a super, super special trip. So uh, happy to give you any tips on that when you're ready to go there. But at this point, Arthur, I want you to let folks know. And actually, before I you even tell them where to go to find more about you and Faster to Master, I just want to mention a couple of things that I have noticed just in going thoroughly through your site. First of all, it is one of the most impressive just completely free curation of A, book recommendations and B, book summaries that I have ever seen, period. And also your original content and articles and blog pieces. I mean, just the free content on your site is so incredibly substantive. You also offer a productivity power pack where people can get free personal productivity templates to get organized, um, reading cheat sheets, memory templates, a language learning pack, which is an 8,000 word learning guide. And it's all this stuff is free on your site. So it's an insane aggregation and compilation of resources. So I want people just to be able to go to your site in general, but also to tell them how they can get uh, if they're interested in the Traction Planner, if they're interested in the Traction Masterclass. And for that matter, if they're interested in just connecting with you, following you on social media and that kind of stuff, where should they go and how can they find all that? Uh, yeah, I think that I'm, so I'm not on any social media. Uh, <laughs> so it's a bad place to connect with me. Okay. Uh, but I do love getting emails. I, or I read every email. I reply to every email. Um, I love, I mean, I started faster months to connect with people. That's what I love about it. So I do love getting emails. So send me an email. A lot of people don't know if they have a productivity problem or they suspect they might have a productivity problem. And something that I put together recently is this productivity quiz, and it has 25 of the key habits, which I've seen in my clients, in the CEOs I work with, in my own life, in all of these things that we, you talked about, what are the things that are, all people do who are productive? That's a really interesting thing. It gives you a sort of benchmark. And not only will you get a benchmark, it gives you a productivity quotient, a PQ, but it'll also um, show you what are those 25 habits and you can send them to yourself. And, and it will. it's a great way to uh, go in with an understanding of where you need to improve and, and what, what will be helpful to read. 
Awesome. So for people to k- get access to all that, should they just go to just the website? Just go to fastermaster.com. You'll see it in the top, the quiz in the top right-hand corner the uh, and also on the homepage. Um, and then you've got everything is easily laid out, so you can't miss it. Uh, if you want to contact me, I'm uh, Arthur at fastermaster.com. Uh, you can also find the contact page. You can also subscribe and then uh, to the mailing list by down- sending yourself any of those uh, free downloads. And then you can just reply to any of the emails there. And, and I'd love to get your emails. Awesome. We're going to put links to all of this in the show notes for this episode. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and just click on the show notes for this episode. And we'll have direct links where you can get all of this amazing, awesome, free content and connect with Arthur. Arthur, thank you so much for being here, man. This is a blast. You're very welcome. All it's right. gone fast. Wow. Yeah, it's gone fast. Yeah, you never know. I mean, an hour and 45 minutes to go by that quickly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome to have you here, though, my man. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Matt. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.